This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Since its founding in 1946, cosmetics giant Estee Lauder has grown to more than 25 brands in 140 countries. In a recent interview with Knowledge at Wharton, William Lauder, the company's executive chairman, discussed the state of the company today. First of all, I mean, Estee Lauder has always placed a great emphasis on sticking to its core values and the, keeping the heritage of the brand intact. Could you talk to me a little bit about what are those core values and kind of how they figure into both day-to-day operations and also decisions to expand and add new brands to your line? Well, you know, the core value of our companies really play into decisions virtually every single day at almost at almost every single level. And I guess you have to go back and say, well, what are those core values and how do they inform the decisions that everybody makes? Now, mind you, we've got a company of over 30,000 employees where we're selling something every four seconds of every single day, 365 days out of the year, if not more. Um, if we could sell more, we would. And the fact of the matter is, is there are thousands of decisions being made every single day. And they're not controlled by some central, all-knowing, all-seeing organization. But it's about those core values. It's those principles about what makes our company great, what makes our brands great. And it's all about great brands, great people, and what is the right thing to do for the consumer to make her happy. And we try to focus that in. And everybody has their mission and their moment for what they're doing. And how does that, what they do, contribute to the overall mission of the company. We look at ourselves in many different ways and say, okay, well, we're sort of, the hierarchy is an inverted uh, pyramid where the top of our organization are the people who represent our brands to the consumer in stores around the world. They are the most important because they touch the consumer every day. And it's the consumer's connection with them and with the brands that continues to make us successful. Mm-hmm. And now tell me a little bit about how women have changed over the years. Like I was reading a recent story in the New York Times about the company that had mentioned that one of your grandmothers, kind of the things that she always did when people came in is try to touch every customer that came in, either by dabbing lotion on her hand or giving her a makeover. And then there was also a point where discussing like the new Clinique counters where people can actually go and do more self-service without having to talk to Um, a customer service associate. So talk to me a little bit about that dichotomy and how the customer has changed and what they want has changed. Many of the dynamics of how consumers shop today for their beauty products have remained the same for 20, 30, 40 years. And some of the aspects and the behaviors have changed dramatically. And they have been continually involved over time. I think what's happened is, first of all, they have an extraordinary multiplicity of choice. They have many different retail environments to choose from, many different brands to choose from in these many different retail environments. And the notion of convenience and shopping and how they stratify themselves according to shopping patterns has changed over time. So for example, in the 1970s, the consumer who shopped in a very upscale prestigious store like a Neiman Marcus would never consider shopping in a Walmart or with a Walmart of the day. Today, she thinks nothing of driving her Suburban to Neiman Marcus in the morning to buy that very fancy Prada outfit, having lunch with her friends, and then getting in her Suburban and going to Walmart and picking up the toilet paper that she needs because she knows it's the best value. She doesn't have a problem with that today. And she doesn't think that says anything in a negative way about herself. In fact, maybe she can even say, I didn't even shop Walmart, I shop Costco. 
that's just an example. For our products itself, you know, really is the consumer has comes in very informed. She knows she knows she thinks she knows what she wants, but the expertise that somebody gets in the store, that hasn't changed. The authority of that expert in the store, the Estee Lauder makeup artist, the Clinique consultant, the Mac makeup artist, the Estee Lauder beauty advisor, the Mac makeup artist, the Clinique consultant, that really hasn't changed. And that human touch that is so important, that was so important, one of the key core principles around which our company was founded, that still hasn't changed because the fact of the matter is, is the consumer still wants and needs to be touched. And the expertise that she gets in helping to find the right product for her, she appreciates and she puts that into her, the value calculation that she makes when making a purchase. That's a very important element of the behavior that she has. Convenience is another issue. The notion of convenience has changed, not just because of perhaps what the internet offers, which really doesn't represent a meaningful size of her consumption in our category. And, and most retail overall doesn't really represent a big meaningful side except for books and music and a few other categories where you can actually buy the equivalent online without having to go to a store. But the fact of the matter is consumers still want to see it, touch it, feel it, smell it. Technology does not allow that to be replaced, so she's still willing to go. The other thing is, is that shopping, the notion of what shopping is about, that's a behavioral pattern that hasn't really changed. It's still as much about entertainment as it is about an act of consumption. Mm -hmm. And many people can entertain themselves happily at home with all the different electronic gadgets that they have to keep themselves entertained at home. But many still want to get out and about and be in a social environment. So the result is, is they still like to shop in an environment like that. And that's a, this is a part of the whole activity. And then you add that, the interaction with an expert who they, with whom they can talk. And that, that behavior has only evolved a little bit, not a lot. So there are certain things that change. And we in the cosmetics business, for example, we thrive on the fact that so many of our consumers, once they find the product that they love and they like, they want to come back and buy it again and again. And they want something new, but they want the thing that they like not to change so they can use it again and again. The number one consumer feedback we get from the consumers is bring back. Mm -hmm. When we've discontinued a product, their favorite shade, their favorite this, the number one, if, you just, if I just say categories, what are they complaining about? Are they complaining about service? Are they complaining about environment? Number one is bring back. That, I was going to say you take away someone's favorite shade of lipstick and they're going to tell you about it. Absolutely true. Now tell me, I guess one of the other things in the Times story was that you, you were quoted as saying that working for a family business means every member of the board has your home phone number, they know where you live. Talk to me, I mean, what are some of the challenges and also the benefits of working for a company that really, I would say at this point, is probably like another member of your family almost? Well, you know, a family company is both, you know, there's two definitions of family. There's family that's blood, and then there's family which is everybody who belongs to the organization, regardless of blood, who are also family in a way. And you want to treat everybody the same at, in that respect, but you also want to treat them with respect and professionalism, which is such an important part of what we do. I think what's our competitive advantage of, as a family company really is and has been since our founding is our innovation and our patience that has allowed us to maintain our leadership in our industry because of our patience in nurturing and developing new brands, nurturing and developing people, and creating an environment where 
we are the place to come for innovation. We're the one, we're the most innovative marketers. We're the most innovative brand builders. We're the most innovative on a retail on a retail basis, and we do that because. Not only do we have a passion for innovation and we may have baked that into our behaviors and mentalities of how we look at executives and their skill sets and development, but also how we succeed with the consumer that keeps us coming back for more and doing more. But we also have the patience to nurture new brands and new ideas perhaps longer than companies that don't have the same ownership structure. Now tell me, I guess conversely, I mean, what are some of the challenges of it being kind of a family-owned business and... Well, many of the challenges of a family-owned business are the same no matter what kind of business you're in, which is you have family members who may have certain uh, emotional opinions and biases which may or may not be best based on rational thought. And they may be based on emotion. And sometimes those emotions are legitimate and sometimes perhaps they're based on ideas that did work at one point but perhaps are not as relevant today. In other words, when I was your age, why well, did this or that? And it oftentimes to be able, the ability to say, gee, you know, I'm not so certain that might work right now isn't so good. Now, that is the other side of what I talked about before, which was we are very innovative and we have innovation as a part of what we do, but occasionally there are stakeholders who perhaps have the same last name as me who have a stake in the way it was, not necessarily the way it will be, and it takes extra convincing to get there. That's one of the issues. And you know what? At the end of the day, I'd say we have more advantages than we have disadvantages, and you just – and even for our professional managers – there are those who, from a personality basis, fit within our organization and the psychological profile that it takes to be successful within our organization, and they're really good. And there are others who come along and who aren't as successful, perhaps because they aren't as comfortable in the family-style environment. Perhaps they don't have the same collaborative approach to what they do. And, but that's almost any organization anywhere, regardless of the ownership structure. You have great personality fits when people succeed because they fit within the organization well and they contribute so well with their peers. And you have others that aren't as successful because they don't fit within the psychological profile of the organization. Right. I guess no matter where you are, institutional knowledge is sort of both a great advantage and also can be a double-edged sword, though. Correct. Now, a few years ago, you, you decided to step down as CEO of Estee Lauder, and, and now you serve as executive chairman. Could you talk to me a little bit about some of the professional reasons why you made that decision, and then also how, how has that changed your role? What is your role today, and how does that differ from when you were serving as both chairman and executive? Well, and you know, qu quite honestly, um, being a CEO of a public company today in today's environment, not only the post-Sarbanes-Oxley and other things, is, is not quite what it's all cracked up to be if you read it in the press. And it can be a sentence. Now, if you're the CEO of a family company, if you're not careful, it can be a life sentence. And the fact of the matter is, is that it's uh, very hard work. It's a great deal of time. It takes a great deal of energy. And oftentimes, I found, and I did not have a COO with whom I was working. So I was, if you will, doing a great deal myself. Doing three jobs, essentially. Well, essentially, yes, I was doing a lot and had a lot going on. And when I looked at the roster of the most senior executives that I had within my organization, and I said, okay, fine, whom do I have who can be a long-term partner, business operating partner with me to run this company? And... As I asked that question, I also said, let me take a survey of the outside 
to see if there are any executives out there who are perhaps not a part of our industry, not, not a part of our company, not a part of our industry, who might be able to add something to the collective thought and wisdom of the way our company runs that would be different. And when I started to look outside, I found Fabrizio Freda, who is now our CEO, who was someone who was thinking along the lines the way I was thinking, but yet at the same time brought a very different perspective, a very different background. And I thought, you know what? He's going to add a spice and a different way of looking to what we do in a way that's going to add more to what our company can do. And at the end of the day, I said, I've always said, from the day I walked in, as I've been with my family company for 51 years practically, but the day I became CEO, I said, I'll only be here as long as I can be as effective or more effective than anyone else who can do this job. And when I found Fabrizio and we found each other in a sense, hey, you know, we got along great. We said, this is really great. I think this is a partnership that can work and he can add a lot to our company and our company can be a better company for what he can add and he can help take preserve what's the best about what we do and then add some thoughts and disciplines the way we do things to make it better. And after a year and a half, I said, you know what? This is perfect. Tag, you're it. You're now CEO. So how does that change my life? Um, I'm spending more time on those things which I really like to do, spending much more time on the strategy, broad strategies of the company, much more time in our development of our emerging markets, spending more time traveling, working on brand development, working on market development, working on strategic acquisitions, and I'm also working a great deal, unfortunately, on government relations. Why is that? An increasing, increasing regulatory environment around the world, predominantly but not exclusively Asia, and Europe, as well as in North America. And I find I'm actually pretty good at that piece. And so it allows Fabrizio to keep doing what he's really good at. And I can more focus on what I think I'm pretty good at and it seems to work very well for both of us. And our company is performing better as a result. I still spend a great deal of time working not just with Fabrizio, with a lot of members of his team. And I've still got some executives who report directly to me in certain key roles because it's both an expertise I have as well as it's the right allocation of responsibilities between the two of us. Mm -hmm. So what it effectively does is from a leadership perspective, it gives us a strength in the leadership in both a strong partnership as well as a very balanced approach as to who leads which efforts effectively. Mm -hmm. and. There are certain things that Fabrizio's expert at in which I say, go, wonderful, do this really well. There's certain things that I'm more expert at that he may be focusing in on, but we talk together about it, and then he goes and does it. Or he may say, look, this is something I'm working on. I'd really love your assistance in this. And whether I say, go do it, and he go does it, or he says, please, and he sort of tosses it in my lap, and I go do it, that's, we really are very comfortable. There's no ego. We both have enough of an ego for certain, but there's no ego in the sense of saying we want to get it accomplished. We're both very results-oriented, and that's very important. And uh, you actually men you mentioned Asia, so I guess my, that brings me to my next question. Um, talk to me a little bit about like what, in what countries or what regions is Estee Lauder looking to expand or create maybe a new presence, and how I mean, how do you adapt to sort of going into global markets to different markets other than maybe the U.S. and Europe? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that we've been a global company for 30, 40 plus years. Or if we first expanded outside of the United States in the U.K., I think in 1960. And today we're doing 63 to 65% of our global businesses outside of uh, North America. Um, 
and that's growing much more rapidly than inside of North America for a number of reasons. Number one, it's a less developed market, so those markets are growing faster. Number two, our share isn't as strong as it is in North America, so therefore we've got more share to gain. And number three, for the vast majority, but not exclusively, for the vast majority of the last 10 plus years, the dollar's been very weak. So the result is, is as the, dollar, the dollar's weakness actually helps us as we translate back into dollars our results. So the combination of this fact says we need to be continually investing more. We, we're in Europe very early on in the process, but most of our key competitors are European or Asian-based. We don't have as many American competitors in the prestige cosmetic space. They're predominantly European, some Asian. Um, but we've been early investors in a number of different markets in the world. And this goes back to the question you asked about advantages of family controlled company, the fact of the matter is, is we've got a great deal of patience when it comes to investment in markets. So we are continually investing. We started investing in China 12, 14 years ago. And we made some very conscious decisions about six, seven years ago that not only we were going to ramp up our investments in China, and we were going to change from a management perspective how we made those investments in China or how we treated those investments in China to make sure that no short-term decision-making got in the way of the long-term goal of having a leadership position in share and prestige cosmetics in China, as an example. We're continuing to invest in India. It's small now, but it's growing. We're investing in Russia, and it's growing very rapidly now, and it's getting to significant size. We're looking very seriously at Latin America. We have a presence in Latin America, but it's small, and it's growing, and we look at where it might be. And perhaps the next frontier is Africa. Obviously, growing very rapidly in population. There seems to be a growing middle class. We'd like to see how the retail networks develop in, the, in those markets where there is some growing middle class. The key characteristics are stronger emerging middle class with disposable income, which they have to spend on themselves. We've been investing in the Middle East for a number of years quite successfully, and will continue to do so too. So there's lots of regions in the world that still offer us great opportunity, as well as our established markets where we look and say, well, how can we, how we model those markets against our more well-established markets and say, where can each of our brands go and develop their share to a level that we think matches the opportunity in the marketplace? And we continually find ways to invest in those opportunities where they are, where there are competitive advantages. And sometimes we pull back and say, you know what? We're not going to invest as much here because we're, the investment's not giving us the return we need. That's a very important element of what we do. And how do you adapt kind of your marketing to more of a global audience? I mean, it's, is it one size fits all or do you have to really specialize to fit the customer in different areas? You know, the concept of global imagery for brands is very important. There's a consistency of imagery, but not a slavish consistency to image where all of a sudden perhaps it looks the same around the world but isn't as relevant in many places. So how we customize the relevance is extremely important for the success of any of our marketing programs. And that may mean things like, I'll give you a great example. This was a number of years ago, but to me it's a great example. We had a product where one, the key prop, for want of a better word, in the advertising shot was a birthday candle. And so that was the key prop and was leaning up against the product. And the notion was that you're going to stop seeing the signs of aging, so you're going to stop seeing the signs of what more and more birthday candles may mean. Right. 
And we liked the photograph. It was a beautiful photograph by a well-known photographer, and it really looked great. And we were showing our Asian brand managers for this one brand, the picture and the shot. And I noticed when we showed it to them that they were very silent. Their silence was very loud. Asian, many Asian cultures, there's a belief that one shouldn't be confrontational. So instead of like their European counterpart saying, I hate it, I don't like it, and this is what you're wrong about, they were just quiet. They weren't nodding, saying, yes, I love it. They weren't clapping. They were just quiet. And to me, it was a very loud silence. So I said, guys, what's up? And finally, one of the bolder ones said, well, it was a white birthday candle. And they said, well, you know, in Asia, we only burn candles like this when somebody dies. There was a revelation to us. Oh, okay, fine. What kind of candles do you have in a birthday cake or whatever once you to celebrate somebody's birthday? And they said, oh, it's a red and white or a pink and white candle. Same style, but it's all white is when somebody dies with a stripe in it, it's for a birthday. Oh, okay. Easy to fix. But that's a cultural relevance piece. In other words, so there's a consistency of the image. You just change the one thing that all of a sudden says the wrong thing to the consumer. You know, the classic case, of course, you know the most classic is the Chevy Nova marketed in Latin America. In Spanish, Nova means no go. Oh, I didn't know that, I mean, you use, you, 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 there's, there's actually a website, I forget the name of the website, with all these really classic marketing mistakes that were really born out of cultural ignorance. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I guess one quick thing to wrap up, I guess, can you share with us quickly, was there sort of a favorite beauty tip that your grandmother would always talk about? <laughs> you know, uh, my grandmother was famous for so, for so many expressions and so many things she said, well, I mean, a beauty tip, she said, everybody's beautiful. And, I, uh, and she said that every, every woman is beautiful, just some are more lazy than others in how they work on their beauty. One of the things, and one of my favorite expressions of hers is she said, our job is we have to get women to put their hands together. In this hand, she has her pocketbook, and this is her free hand. We need her to stick her free hand into her pocketbook, pull out her credit card, and say, I'll take it. Because at the end of the day, the efforts we make to create the product we want is all about the customer saying, I want it, I need it, I'll use it, and I'll come back again. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.